Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Open up to Daniel chapter 10, verse 2. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. We're going to go so quickly here that I'm going to stop. And I have to mention, you have an 85-year-old man here who is still desiring a relationship with God. And this is so cool. I I can remember uh, back, um, my grandfather, uh, he was 88 years old when he ordered a new set of commentaries. And he wanted to hear from the newer generation what they they thought. And I thought, you know, that's just so cool. That's, I want to be doing that at that age. And here we see Daniel doing that. He's coming to the, to, you know, toward the end of his earthly life here. You know, we don't know how many, we, we know we can live up to 120. Some of us may do that. I know Vivian, uh, uh, she's not here today, but she keeps saying she's going to live to, she's 104. Because her mom died at 104 and her grandmother died at 104, so she's going to live to 104. We really don't know the days that we have on this earth. But he's looking forward to eternity, but he's still leaning toward God here on this earth. There is an intensity toward God that he has at the age of 85 that that seems to be more than he even had at the age of 15 when he was taken to Babylon. And it's almost the opposite of what we usually see, isn't it? Usually we see the the young who are are just like on fire for God. The younger we are, the, the more intense we are, it seems. And if we don't keep pushing, a dullness sets in in our Christian walk. A dullness sets in where we're just kind of like going along and we're like, oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. You have to almost remind yourself of that. And here we have an example of Daniel that, that, you know, we see that Daniel's figured it out. He really has. And as he keeps reading the scriptures, as we've talked about over the last several weeks, you know, he's starting to understand that there are 70 years of captivity in, in Babylon is almost up. So Daniel starts, you know, the repenting process for Israel. And he's being the example of, you know, for the rest of of Israel in in his mourning of their sin. And from chapter 7, he starts to to have these visions. Now, chapters 1 through 6, we talked a lot about him interpreting visions for others. And then in chapter 7, he starts having these visions himself. His walk with God started to change at that point. And in verse 5, an angel appears to him... um, and says, you know, it's, it's interesting here because the angel is just an amazing creature. It's a very spectacular creature. And, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about the, the difference of how we portray angels today. But in verse 4, it starts out, On the 24th day in the first month, as I was standing at the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was, was a chrysolite, and his face like lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And his voice the sound of the multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone. Doesn't he have great friends here? I was left alone grazing 
at this great vision. I have no strength left, left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. I mean, the friends just take off. They don't, they don't see the angel, but they feel something that they don't like, and they just flee. This kind of reminded me of the loneliness of a leader sometimes. Sometimes a, a leader can, can crave being alone, you know, just wish everybody would just back up and give you room. And, and I'm not just talking about myself, I'm just talking about leadership in, in any position that you can be in, whether it's in ministry, uh, you know, in a church or, or, you know, in one of the ministries at a church or, or maybe it's where you work, you're, you're the leader and sometimes you're just like, just back off, I'm tired of everybody knocking on my door. But there are other times when you want to be around a lot of people. For those that are in ministry, you know, so you can get your mind off the depth of, uh, of what God is trying to say to you. Or maybe the confusion of not understanding what God is saying to you. There are times when we pray, Lord, give me a clear vision as, as what to do. What to do in my, in my ministry or my small group. Give me a vision of, of what to do in my family, how I should be handling things. What, give me that vision, Lord. And this is a great prayer. But sometimes a loneliness comes with that leadership. In order for God to give us that vision, sometimes He must get us alone. And sometimes that means alone for a while. And at first it might feel really good. You're just like, oh, good. It's like a vacation. You know, you get there and you're just like, everybody, there's no one here knocking on my door. But after a while, it starts to feel really lonely. You know, really lonely. It's, it's almost like an intensity of the, of the Garden of Gethsemane when you, when you almost feel like, God, are, are you even there? Are you there? Guys like Daniel, Ezekiel, John, and Isaiah, all these guys went through this. There's a certain emotional price to pay for spiritual growth. And I'm convinced this is why more of us don't mature in our faith. Because we don't want to go through this process. We don't want to go through the process of, of really getting in-depth with God. We like the surface. We like the, you know, I get out my Bible every now and then. And that's why we don't grow as, you know, in, the, in our maturity. We sense, you know, something and we don't like it. We're almost like Daniel's friends sometimes, right? I, ooh, this is getting a little uncomfortable for me, so I'm just going to take off. I just don't like this, so I'm out of here. The consequences of seeking the Lord is a change in us. And sometimes there will be people who don't understand that change whatsoever. What goes on in verse 9, Then I heard him speaking, and as, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. You know, as I said earlier, I, I love the paintings of angels. Have you ever seen a whole bunch of paintings of angels? They're usually represented as babies. And for some reason, all the babies have really big bottoms. I don't know why, I just, as I started looking at them on the internet, I noticed that. Maybe it's because, you know, we have a kid now and his bottom is big when his diaper fills up, but that's, you know. But, you know, it doesn't seem to me that, you know, that would knock you out. It doesn't seem to me that that would put you down on the ground unless, you know, their diaper hadn't been changed in a while. But this angel is no little child. Verse 10, it said, a hand touched me and sent, and, you know, sent me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for, now, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. 
It's interesting here. He goes on to tell the future of, of, of Persia and Greece and the history here. And it's all concerning God's people and, and what's going to happen to them before Christ comes <clears throat> a little bit here. But in verse 12 it says, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that I set you, your mind to gain understanding, to humble yourself before God. Let me rephrase that. Let me say that again. Since the first day you set your mind to gain and understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come to respond to them. This has got to be very encouraging for some of us. For those that have been crying out to God, for those that, you know, to, to, for us to understand that since the beginning of Daniel's prayer, when true repentance is there, when true closeness to God, when we go to God and, and confess our sins and, and talk to Him and, and ask Him, hey, I need help in this area, or, or I don't know what to do here, Lord, can you show me the way? Our words are, are heard. To hear an angel say to him, you know, from the first moment, as soon as you pressed yourself, as soon as you started to, 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 to send that prayer, it was received. Just because you haven't heard anything for 21 days, Daniel. It's almost like he's, he's not really chastising Daniel, but he's reminding Daniel, hey, 21 days ago when you started this process, that's when we heard you. Daniel set his mind and humbled his heart. It cleared the path and his prayers went toward the heavenlies. In verse 13 it says, But the prince of Persia kingdom rested, uh, uh, resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princesses, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now it's revealed to Daniel that while Daniel was, has been in prayer here, while Daniel has been fasting and, and praying here, he partnered with the angels in battles that he did not even know about. It's kind of like when Paul writes in, in Ephesians. He says, For our struggles are, are not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil and the heavenly realms. You know, one reason to fast is to be able to say, hey, flesh, hey, this earthly body, I'm going to resist you. This is, it's not about you. You are not ruling me today. You are not in control of my life. Because we have these earthly desires, don't we? I can tell you, when, when little Brandon wakes up at 4 or 5 a.m. and starts screaming, I know what his desires are. He either wants to be changed or he wants food. Usually he wants food first. Don't ask me why, that's just the way it works. But it's interesting here. There are battles happening. And sometimes we need to start fasting. Sometimes we've got to go that extra step to say to our own bodies, you are not ruling me today. There's a bigger battle here. There's a bigger battle happening here. It's a spiritual battle. So Daniel, he basically says, I don't have too much time here for you, Daniel. I've got to get back to the, the battle that you're not understanding, the battle you're not seeing here. I've got to get back. But while he was saying this to me, I bowed my face toward the ground, Daniel says, and was speechless. Then one who looked like, like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. 
We look at this and we kind of say, man, is this a, kind of a different angel now? And we really, the scholars really believe that this is the same angel. He just kind of uh, reviewed himself. He kind of changed his appearance so Daniel wouldn't be so, you know, afraid and trembling. And he says to, you know, it's not, so Daniel's not so freaked out now, but he says, I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Against the one who looked like a man touched me, or again the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, afraid, O oh, highly esteemed. He said, Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. It's almost like he was saying, Daniel, if you knew how much God loved you, you personally, if you understood that, you would not be afraid here. You would not be afraid of me. I am only the messenger. When we study the angel's appearance, it's, it's so obviously you know, disturbing to people. That the angel usually says, you go back in Scripture and you look throughout the totality of Scripture, the angel will say over and over, do not be afraid. It's almost, our reaction to this is almost like a little baby getting startled. And as my mom was down here for Lisa's baby shower, I was talking to her and we were talking about babies and stuff, and she goes, Alan, you could not, as a baby, you could not stand loud, shrilly voices. She goes, and I never knew what upset you until we went and visited your grandparents. And your dad's mom has this loud, shrilly voice. And you could not be consoled. Every time she would walk into the room and she talked really loud, it would startle you. And then, of course, you know, you know how grandmothers are or moms of, of the dads, you know, the in-laws in a sense. Sometimes they could be this way. You know, she would go over and tell my mom, you don't know how to take care of this child. Give me this child. And I would just sit there and scream and scream and scream in her arms. And finally, Grandpa took Grandma aside and said, look, Moselle, you need to be quiet. You're scaring that kid. You're startling that kid. And this is like when an angel shows up. We're startled. We jump. It's just like, whoa. It's amazing. I mean, babies, when you startle them, they just kind of jump. Brandon, I I keep talking about Brandon. I'm going to do that for probably years, you know. My wife is so happy that the stories no longer will be about her, but will be about our kid. But Brandon, I mean, when he startles, his, his hands literally go, and then they slowly go back down. It's just hilarious to watch. Not on me, but apparently on him. But, but the point is here, the angels. We are like little babies that are startled around them. It says here, and it goes on, it says, When he first spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will ret- return to fight against the prince of Persia. When I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first... I will tell you that's written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. I got to get back there. Michael's left there. I got to get back there. And it goes on, it says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now think about this. The angel just strengthened who? Daniel, somebody who follows the Lord. Well, Darius the Mede... Does he follow the Lord? Well, we've already learned through the Scripture. No, he doesn't follow the Lord. Here an angel is strengthening a non-Jewish king. 
We have to understand something. God is involved in all world politics. Even what's going on right now in Egypt over there. And we have, my wife and I, we have a lot of Egyptian friends. We, we actually know some people who live in Egypt. I mean, it's just like, wow. But we have to remember, God is involved in world politics. God is involved. Verse 2, it goes on, it says, Now then, I tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who is far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his, by his wealth, he will stir up, stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, I want to tell you that in Daniel 11, 1 through 34, that this is prophecy for Daniel. But for us, it's history. We can go back and we can read in the Bible, and we can go back and and look at secular history, non-biblical history, and we can go, wow, he's talking about Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great had a son, but, but the kingdom wasn't handed to his son, it was handed to his four generals, but they never had the power. We can look at it and say history, and this is prophecy here. And scholars have come up with 135 specific details out of Daniel 11 that describes what happens after Daniel dies and Alexander the Great comes into power. And we've kind of already talked a little bit about Alexander the Great in the biblical history, so I won't bore you with the history that I love today. But Daniel goes into amazing accuracy about what happens after Alexander's death. And in verse 21, where he describes in, in detail an extremely evil ruler, that in, in year 175 B.C., this Antiochus uh, the fourth Epiphany is what he's, he calls himself. And this guy is absolutely evil. I mean, this guy is unbelievably evil. He's the ruler of the, the Seleucids or the Syrian Empire. And in 175 to 164-ish, right in there. And Epiphanies means a vision or a manifestation. So he taught everyone of those he conquered. He taught everyone to worship him as a physical manifestation of Zeus. See, his father worshipped Zeus, and he wanted everyone in the world to worship Zeus. So he just started calling himself, I'm Zeus. I'm the physical representation of who Zeus is. So worship me. Now you can imagine this didn't set well with who? Well, a lot of people, but especially the Jews. Because you didn't worship anybody but God. So in verse 21, it goes on and says, He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when his people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. And this is what he did. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him, both, in the, both it and a prince of the covenant. And what he's talking about here is the high priest... You know, the the new high priest actually purchased the position of high priest from Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He purchased it to become the high priest. But he will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And in fact, the guy that buys the high priesthood is thinking, great, I'm the high priest. And then Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he goes out and says, hey, you're high priest too, now you guys fight it out. And that's what they did. So he almost had a civil war going here. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. 
Verse 24 goes on and says, When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and he will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will be, he will dest, uh, distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among the followers. He will plot the overthrows of fortresses, fortresses but only for a time. With such a large army, he will stir up, stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand before, uh, stand because of the plots devised against him. And what happens is Egypt attacks and, 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 you know, for the first time, he just totally destroys Egypt. It's the first time that Egypt really just is, is destroyed, decimated their army here goes on and says in verse 26, those who eat from the king's, uh, king's pr- uh, provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings who hearts, who, who, with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and will lie to each other. Now, would world leaders ever sit at the same table and lie to each other? Okay. But to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his, uh, to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it. And he returns during that civil war is, is when he comes back against it. And then he returns to his own country. Verse 29, it says, At the appointed time he will invade the, the south again, but this time... The outcome will be different from what it was before. In other words, he'll lose. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. Now, I kind of debated on reading all of that because you kind of get lost in all the details. But basically what it talks about, it sets up here Israel to, to be invaded by Antiochus. And he gets mad and basically comes home and kicks the dog, basically. You know what I'm talking about? For those that can't control their anger, he brings in 22,000 soldiers and kills every male he can find in, in Israel's nation, in Jerusalem. 22,000 soldiers. He takes the children and women to be slaves. There's not many Jews left here in 167 B.C. And at one point, he attacks them on the Sabbath, their holy day. He tears down the city walls, and, and right at the temple, he puts a garrison of soldiers. In other words, right near the Holy Holies. I mean, this is not a good thing for Jews. And he builds an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies and sacrifices a pig on that altar. Now, as you could imagine, this did not set well with the Jews at all. And this starts a rebellion, and, and some of you that, that love biblical history, this is what we call the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, I think it's three brothers, the Maccabean brothers, start this huge revolt, and for three years they, they literally kick Antiochus out of Israel. And this is when Hanukkah, you know, you hear the word Hanukkah, this is, this is part of our history, not just Jewish history. You know, we kind of ignore Hanukkah because we think Jews, but it's actually part of our history. And this happens all between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. There's 400 years there. And it's predicted right here in Daniel in complete detail. And in Daniel 11.35, it says, Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. 
And this is so different than verse 36. There's like a, a switch here. And it says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against God, uh, the, uh, against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. From what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above all. Now, before we kind of read about Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, this is not who we're talking about at this point. Gear switch here. He's talking about future time here. You know, so we read along and, and you know, we, it sort of makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. But it's amazing how the Bible confirms itself over and over again. But then we read verse 36. See, none of this has happened yet. There was no transition there between 35 and 36. But 35 has already happened. 36 has not happened. We think that Daniel is doing what all the prophets, you know, do. And this is almost called telescoping. You know, a telescope, you see one thing and it's very clear. And then you can adjust the telescope and you can see further out. This is what he's doing as a prophet. He's seeing further out here. You know, Gabriel shows him Alexander the Great, and then Gabriel shows him, you know, the, the four generals that take over Alexander the Great's land, and he's like, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. And then he shows a, a pig on the altar, and it's almost like, what? what did you just say? They do what? And then without any transition, he hops in, you know, further, you know, another link there. No warning, he goes way out to the future, to a point beyond us. This is the future of what many people consider the Antichrist. And the Antichrist means the opposite of Christ. Christ, you know, had all the power when he was here on earth, but he chose not to use it. In the garden. He doesn't say, my will be done. What does he say? Not my will, but yours. So the opposite of Christ is the complete opposite of Jesus Sometimes I feel we get too freaked out about our society. And I want to say, do you not understand what th- this stuff is supposed to happen? I mean, especially right now with all the stuff that's going on in Egypt. You know, I- I'm not a big on, okay, this is the beginning of end times and, oh, it's coming really quickly. You know, we don't know. It could come tomorrow. It could come next week. It could come, you know, a year from now. It could come 300 years from now. I'm not sure. I feel that we're in the end times as I read the Word and see some of the things we're doing. But we see that God is ultimately in control. So, so when we freak out about stuff that's going on, we should step back and go, but the Bible says that this stuff is going to happen. So let's not freak out so much. So here in Daniel 11, Antiochus is a model for any Antichrist to come. But before we discuss the future in the Antichrist, I want to point out that there has been many Antichrists who did what they pleased, who ruled huge portions of the world, who did not honor God, who didn't treat people right. I mean, how many of us can think of an Antichrist that fits this mold? Well, I dare say 90% of us immediately thought of Hitler, right? Yeah. You're all shaking your heads. I see, okay? But there's been so many How about many rulers in Africa or Asia, Sudan, Egypt, Kenya, Tunisia, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Syria, North Korea? Again, our first thought is Hitler, but it's not just him. 
And if you were living in Europe at that time, you would have read the scripture and you would have been like, yeah, Hitler's got to be the Antichrist. Hitler's got to be it. Or if you lived in Italy, you would be thinking what? You wouldn't be thinking about Hitler, you were thinking about Mussolini. He's got to be the Antichrist. Well, all these guys were a type of Antichrist. The Congos in the 1960s. Or the Congo, I, I said that wrong, didn't I? The Congos in the 19, the Congo in the 1960s. How about Haiti during Papa Doc or Baby Doc's time? There's been a lot of Antichrist. And to think it was worse than any of these guys, that this Antichrist is going to be worse than any of them, he will do as he pleases. And God's people will be crying out like Daniel. How much longer will we have to live like this? And the answer will be, not forever. The Antichrist rule will end. Verse 48 goes on and says, At the time of the end of the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. And if you want to read more about this, if you're like really into end time stuff and want to try to figure out some of this, which is really good, read Ezekiel 37 and, and 39. Maybe you can figure out Gog and Magog and who these people are going to be and stuff. But it goes on and says, He will invade many countries and sweep, the, sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of the gold and silver and all the riches of Europe and the Libyans and Nubians, which are Ethiopians. They will be in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. Now remember, this is the Antichrist. The thought that these guys can defeat him. In Revelations 9, it talks about an army from an east coming with 200 men against Israel. Now, when this was written, there wasn't 200 million soldiers on this planet. But now, you could easily have this out of China, not to mention India. Both of these would be coming from the east. Do we know? Not sure, but they have armies that size. And he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate them. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. And the beautiful holy mountain is what? Jerusalem. Anytime it talks about beautiful holy mountain, it's talking about Jerusalem. And the seas, well, he's talking about what? Megiddo here. The land of Megiddo. Armageddon. You see how it all fits together here? Between the seas and the holy mountain. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. No one will help him. You know, there's a New Testament confirmation here that, uh, that the prophets oftentimes wrote down stuff that they themselves did not understand. And this is what Daniel's doing. In 1 Peter 1 uh, 10, it says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that, that was to come to you, searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Christ and the glories that would follow. This sounds like us. 
We're searching out the scriptures. We want to know about the end times. We hear the prophets did the same thing. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that they have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. So Peter is saying that even as even though the you know I mean even though the prophets wrote them down, and even though the, the, the Peter says that the angels are the messengers of God, neither one of them understood completely the end times. So it should give us some comfort here that Isaiah is setting up there with John. And they're reading Revelations, and they're like, well, do you get this? I don't know. I don't get this. I think I get this part, but I only understand it so much. Let's get Daniel over here. Hey, grab an angel along the way. And the angels are like, well, this is completely above our pay grade. So I don't know. So the prophecies sometimes confuse us and confound us. And hopefully it doesn't cause us to flee like, you know, running away from an angel. You know, I'm too busy to, to even get into that. Like we said last week, give me Philippians. That's so much easier. But in Daniel chapter 12, we learn about the details about the end times. But what we learn is, these details are not the most important part, important part about the end times. The details about what's going to happen is not the important part. In Matthew 7, Jesus even says that, that here is how to prepare for the end times. None of it says, hey, read, it, read up and study to figure it out. Jesus says, it is great to study, but it is not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing. Well, let's talk about one more thing before we leave. I'm looking at the clock, and that really means I'll go on for 15 minutes, but hopefully I'll cut it in seven or eight minutes. But Daniel says, a mighty ruler will arise. In Daniel 11.3, it says, a ruler will do as he pleases. In Daniel 11.16, it says, the ruler will do as he pleases. In 11.36, it says, the ruler will do as he pleases. Now, whenever you see a repeated phrase in, the, in one chapter of a Bible, you say, wow, this, this must mean something here. The ruler will do as he pleases. We see here the prediction of the faith of any ruler who acts like this, not just the Antichrist in the end, but, you know, Antiochus and beyond. They will do as they please. But in Daniel eleven forty-five, it says, Yet he will come to his end, and no one will be there to help him. No one will come to help him. As soon as you see a ruler who starts to do as he pleases... We say to God's people, just hunker down. Just hold on for a wild ride and hang in there because the day is coming when he will no longer be in power because God promises that. The ruler who does, who does as he pleases, yet his time will come to an end. No, you know, no one will be there to help him. No matter how things appear, God is still in control. And this is really the key to the theme of Daniel. No matter how things appear, God is still in control. And if, and if you haven't understood anything else in the whole book of Daniel, understand this. It doesn't matter how it looks, God is still in control. Completely in control. 
Sometimes it doesn't look like it's a, he's in control. Sometimes it certainly doesn't feel like he's in control. It doesn't even smell like he's in control. But he is in control. And those of us who write in our Bibles, this would be a good thing to flip to the back of your Bible and write, no matter how things appear, God is in control. Book of Daniel, January or February 2010. 11, thank you. Because if you're not going to go through a tribulation, or you're not going through a tribulation, trouble will be in your future. Why? That's just human nature. That's just the way we are, we're born. We're born in, into this world of sin. Since the fall, we've had what? Tribulation in our lives. We've had problems in our lives. And the other thing is, we're coming to the end of our study here, is that God's people need to be very different from the world. God's people need to shine in the darkness. God's people need to make sure that we don't look too much like the world. We need to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. I love that old Petra song, you know? Not of this world. Okay, I, I'm dating myself. None of you. Okay. Maybe a couple of other people. But we need to be in this world, but not of this world. And, and whatever I can do to convince you to stop compromising the areas of gray in your life, to introduce a little more black and white into your life, I want to encourage you. Now, this doesn't mean to get all preachy to the world and get all weird about it. But for your own lifestyle to become more, you know, even more like Christ, and what some may say conservative, now, as you know, that's probably not the right word because we say conservative, we think politics. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the way we live our life. This is how we must behave in the end times. We must shine. There needs to be something so different about us as we get toward the end times that the world will see it. Not, you know, not the, the, the messiness of our lives, but they look at us and say, wow, how do they handle this? How do they, you know, I, I don't understand this. Their life seems to be falling apart, but, but they're not personally falling apart. We will be singled out for a time of suffering. We will be singled out at times for times of persecution. It will be expected. And there are times... That, you know, sometimes it's just not persecution. Sometimes it's just the person doesn't like you. And we get all, you know, we get all persecution paranoid, you know, that type. Oh, they're just persecuting me. We need to call a meeting about this. That's not really, that, that has nothing to do with Jesus. But there's times when we are persecuted because of our faith in Him. And there are several things about us that are almost obnoxious to the world because we're Christ-like. To the point where the world starts to reject us. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That is such an odd statement to say during, during the time of Roman execution. Because this was an instrument of, of Roman execution. And humiliation and shame. And to follow me. Because that is what I'm going to do, Jesus says. I'm going to go through that process. And if we're going to be followers of Christ... It would mean that we would follow him into some form of persecution. And here in America, we have it so good. But we will face a type of persecution. The time will come when, when we should rejoice in a small way because we're entering into the practice and presence of Christ. We will be joining the elite of the kingdom when Paul says two things. I want to know the power of your resurrection 
and the fellowship of your suffering. Isn't that a great thing to say? But he understood what this life was about. And oftentimes we talk about, you know, suffering of physical things like disease or cancer or illness or, or emotional things like, like divorce or, or problems within the families. But that is not the kind of suffering. The kind of the suffering we're talking about is a, is a persecution. Because I'm shining the, the light of, of God into this darkness. What is interesting is you'll find persecution sometimes within Christian circles. And we find, come to find out that that circle is, is really lukewarm. And coming to, to the point where it's so warm that Christians are talking about you because you're making them feel uncomfortable because you're living out your Christian walk the way you should. Now, we also need to be careful that we don't turn into Pharisees going around pointing out sin, 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 sin. I don't like it. You need to get that sin out of your life. We need to be very careful we don't turn into that. We need to shine in grace. We need to shine in mercy. I want to challenge you to look, look at your life and allow the Holy Spirit to instruct you in some of the areas where you should, you should be more black and white in your life. You know, we, we like to stay in the middle and not cause waves, don't we? Just don't rock the boat. Stay in the center of the boat. But we need to ask God to point out the things in our own life that should be black and white. How in the world are we supposed to be like Paul? How in the world are we supposed to be like the other heavenly saints who have gone before us if our lives look exactly like the lives of this world? Hmm. So number one, God is in control. And number two, God's people must shine in darkness. But the next thing is God's people will not suffer forever. God's people in Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Egypt, and many other places around this world will not suffer forever. They keep talking about Egypt. Believe me, I know plenty of Christians that live in Egypt right now. And they're going to suffer because of their Christianity. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea who are believers, where they do physical experiments without anesthetic, without any painkillers. Our brothers and sisters in, in China who are shocked on their bodies in places that we won't even talk about, only because they were preaching on the street. Our brothers and sisters in northern India who are, who are worshiping, knowing that people are waiting literally outside of their worship place with bamboo sticks to beat them as they exit the building. And they endure it week after week. These people will not suffer forever. And it's important for us to understand that people are suffering around the world for saying that they are Christians. The day will come when everyone who calls themselves a Christian will suffer from the Antichrist. But it won't be forever. And we need to pray for, for strength on a daily basis to become more like Christ and prepare ourselves that we are salt, that we are the light, we are to shine in the darkness. You know, we should not get lost in the academic details of who the Antichrist is, who it isn't. Is the temple going to be rebuilt? Is it not going to be rebuilt? Those are all you know, fun things. I love to talk about those things. It's interesting to me. But we shouldn't get lost in those details. While our neighbors to the left and to the right have not heard about Christ, 
because our witness is so weak in our own neighborhoods. Or that we would leave not convicted of our own sin, but knowing that we have forgiveness. And through forgiveness, that, that our lives should be a consuming fire, as it says in Hebrews, that we should be on fire for God, for our faith in God. For our God is a consuming fire. May He consume you today to do something about your faith in Him. That people would see the grace and the peace of God in your life. And if you don't have that grace and peace today, how are others supposed to see that in you? If we're not willing to live like Christ, how are others supposed to find Him? Oh, that the Lord would call us to the narrow road, the narrow road of His purpose, that our own lives would burn like a candle in the night, that we would not lie down to die knowing that there were things that we were supposed to do on this earth that we never got to because we were too busy with the world's things. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we don't get too busy. And I pray that you help, help us slow down in our own lives, that we recognize what is truth and what is falsehood, that we recognize the things that we should be about, the things that we should be doing in our lives, the things that we should reflect in our life versus those things of the world that are, that are literally anti-Christ. I pray that you allow the, the Spirit to really work in our lives, to point out those things that should be black and white, to allow us to reflect you more in this world. And I pray, Lord, as we study your Word, even the, even the stuff that, that, that we don't understand, like you know the end times, that is, that's all fine and dandy. That's all wonderful to know, Lord. And you may reveal some new stuff to us along those lines, a, a new understanding in our own mind as we read it for the 15th time. But we not get lost in those details that we stop living for you on a daily basis, Lord. Lord, I pray that our worship is worthy of being called children of God. Our worship as we go to work, our worship as we get in our car, our worship as we, we raise our children, our worship as we celebrate Super Bowls. Our worship is how we live our lives, Lord, and may that reflect you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and may His, may His grace and His mercy fill you on a daily basis that His face shall never turn from you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.